Hi, my name is David Speed. And I'm Adam Brazier. And this is the Creative Rebels podcast. Featuring inspirational stories and practical advice from some of the most prolific and successful creators in the world. Adam and I have co-founded multiple creative businesses and turned our varied passions into our careers. There's never been a better time in history to make a career from being creative. So many people will tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to show you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast. Welcome back, Rebels, to another episode of Creative Rebels. <laughs> Great um, <laughs> intro. I'm not going to keep you long, mate, because I know you're not, not very well, yeah, are I'm you? Yeah, a bit under the weather, yeah. So if I cough during this, it'll be nicely edited out so no one will hear it, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, we'll try anyway. We're recording this intro. Um, so as this episode goes out, I'll actually be in Holland painting a barge, a big 40 meter long barge. <laughs> and I'll probably be in bed. <laughs> and you'll be in bed. So um, so it's going to be a fun week for both of us. One thing that I've been thinking about a lot this week is due, just due, due to a couple of different messages that we've got um, is the, the old age thing. Mm-hmm. The question's popping up again and again. Like and, old, old or young? Well, both. This is the thing. So a few people have said, I know I'm probably older slash I know I'm probably younger than most of your audience. Guys, don't assume like that, you know, the age of the audience, like all ages listen to this podcast. And it's inspiring for us when we see the people that are are much older, that have got families, careers, commitments and it's really difficult for them to yeah. start something, actually starting something. And it's also really inspiring when we see the young people who have have got like they're they're just starting something, like they're fresh out into the world and they they've got no money or or support or anything like that. Both of those stories are super inspiring. And anyone in between, like in your if you're our age, like however old you are. Yeah, um, I heard a stat recently that was uh, most companies that have made over a million pounds have been started by, on average, someone who's forty-seven. So that kind of shows that that level of experience is ne- it's never too late to start something because those businesses are started by people on average when they were 47. Actually, it's quite interesting you bring that up because that's if making a million is important to you. And I think in this episode, we really drill down on that, working out what it is that is important to you and whether that is going to be money. And if money does buy happiness, it's something that we really explore in this one. Yeah, this episode is really interesting because this is someone who earned a lot of money, millions in fact, and then wasn't happy. So that idea of money brings happiness, for some it might, but I think for most it doesn't. And I think there's lots of studies done that shows as soon as you earn over, I think it's 70 or 80,000 pounds a year, the actual level of money and happiness doesn't increase as that as that grows. Another thing we talk about in this episode is what our guest Mike Winnett likes to call the contrepreneur, which is basically someone who um, is promising something that they're not going to deliver on basically you're going to give them your money and they're promising to for you to get rich quick and it doesn't really seem to pan out yeah it's that idea of like everyone's looking for this shortcut and it always sounds great always sounds easy if someone comes to you and says if you give me a thousand pounds two thousand pounds three thousand pounds for me to teach you something you'll make a million you're like well and you don't have to do any work for it seems like a good return it sounds like a great idea if someone if that was genuinely true then everyone would be doing that and it would be completely great but i think it's as soon as you realize that these people aren't making their money from running big businesses they're making money from you effectively who are purchasing those things that's when things start to get a bit bit shady yeah so just be careful out there look for the red flags look for the warning signs i know we've definitely had people dm us that and they're asking like do you think it's a good idea for me to take this course now 
I know, and some of you might be kind of thinking of or already running your own courses because that is like teaching a legitimate course is actually a great way to earn a living and a great way to help people. Yeah. Um, but there are so many that are not there to do that and that they are promising something that they can't deliver on. So just be careful. Um, look at the warning signs. A lot of the warning signs are like uh, the time's running out for you to be able to sign up to this course. The There's a there's a clock and it's ticking down. Um, live webinars, and when you tune into them, they're actually not live, and it's yeah. just this recording thing. And they do all of these things to try and trick you into thinking that it's live. There's lots of things to be aware of and wary of out there. Yeah, I think if you're going to spend a lot of money on anything, try and get someone you know's advice. Like find out if someone's done it before, if someone's bought this thing before, what they've thought about it. So even if it's just purchasing like a new camera, maybe because people reach out to me all the time asking me what they should buy, what they should get. And that's talking to someone who's an expert in that. Don't just think, oh, well, if I go and buy this £5,000 camera, that's going to make me a great photographer. Because that £5,000 camera might not be the best camera for you. So speak to someone who knows what they're talking about before you just throw yourself into it and get yourself in debt. Yes, and make sure that person is someone that you know and trust because as we talk about in the episode, the online reviews that you'll be reading aren't always genuine. Yeah. So really be um, careful about that. And I, I think one of the really funny things that struck me about this is a lot of those entrepreneurs have the same message that we have mm -hmm. which is that kind of like do what makes you happy um fuck the nine to five off like we we like we do recommend that for a lot of people if it's not making them happy if it's not making them fulfilled hopefully over sort of the years of our like collective content that we've been putting out there we like we've built trust with you so make sure you have that relationship and it's not just someone screaming and and being really loud and just that that grabs you in that that you get caught by i think if we ever did decide to put out a course which is not something that we're talking about or have ever thought about but if we did decide to put out a course um because i think doing a course it can be good for some people because they have skin in the game like mm -hmm. as, as soon as they're invested in something it's like oh i've got to follow through so if we did do that like like you can bet your fucking ass like we would make sure that it's good, good content <laughs> yeah. like that it would actually be enriching you and helping you so um just look for the people like so for example marie folio who's been on um the show she has a thing called b school and we've had listeners reach out and say that they have done b school and that they thought it was really good so there is good shit out there but this episode really focuses on the bad stuff yeah if it seems too good to be true it probably is yes so this week's episode is with mike winnett and mike winnett is a fictional character the first fictional character we've had on this show. Yeah, I think it is and probably will ever, will ever be. <laughs> Mike Winnett is a content creator who goes after online gurus and entrepreneurs, as he calls them. People who use exploitative tactics to sell their online course, their mastermind program or mentorship. Real Mike sold his company for $11 million. And in this episode, we talk about what it takes to make a million and what it feels like once you actually get there. In this episode, we talk about making millions, exposing entrepreneurs, and content creation. And I've put out, in my mind, like a far superior product that no one watches. <laughs> and I find that hard. It's weirdly, on any of these platforms, even on LinkedIn, even on YouTube, or any sort of content, the sort of cruel irony or the cruel thing about it all is you've got to almost do your best work at the beginning when no one's watching.
I'm Mike. Hey, right. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I think you're the first uh, millionaire that we've had that we've had on the show. My real um, millionaire, not Bitcoin millionaire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you've sold uh, at least 40 books, haven't you? Uh, yeah, 49 uh, 99p books, Amazon bestseller, banned Amazon bestseller. So how do you become an Amazon bestseller by only selling 40 books? Um, I studied the tactics used by some of the most successful entrepreneurs online and realized that you could put any old shite out um, as long as you pick a niche category and release it on a day that no one else is releasing their books. And, and uh, then that was wh- it. What was the name of your book? Uh, How to Get an Amazon Bestseller. And uh, what, was the, what was the content in there? Uh, 144 pages. Um, took me an hour to design, uh, upload and write. It just said blank page on every single page. Uh, bar three, which was, uh, here's a lesson for you for buying this book and expecting something more than this. Do the work, don't look for a shortcut. And why did you do that? Two reasons, really. Number one, to show that you can fake credibility or authority in any sort of sector or field you Mm. choose quite easily uh, and expose the ridiculousness of these sort of instant gurus or insta-gurus. And also... Just to test the theory, really, I suppose that was it. You know, I've always thought you can do it. And I've also seen, I don't know if you've ever seen that there's a guy that got a picture of his foot to number one on Amazon a few years Uh-oh. ago. Yeah, he called the book, uh, Put My Foot Down. And um, he got it to number one. I just wanted to see if uh, Amazon had done what they said that they, they implemented changes there. So all books are manually checked. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to put that to the test as well. It turns out they're that not. Definitely wasn't the case no. in that one. And that's where it got banned, actually. Um, so... In Australia, it made the news um, and they got in touch with Amazon for comments. And then that was when the book actually got pulled. So it was on sale for three weeks. It sold about 160 copies in total, but it got to number one in 49 copies. Interesting. So if you'd have put like lines that people could fill in on those pages, then it probably would have still been on there. Because then it's like, oh, well, here's your opportunity to go and write something. If yeah, a workbook. Yeah. yeah. That's what we actually said on the, so one of the very first page was... Um, Here's what we've done, and we've like basically produce a book, pick a really niche category, and then put it on uh, promote it on your social media. So we get, we did give the steps at the very beginning. That took one page, and then we said, um, but there's no time like the present, so please use the rest of this book to write your own bestseller. <laughs> uh, so that was originally the, the loophole that they 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 caught us out on because they said, well, on the Kindle version, we can't, you can't actually write. Uh. Uh, so it's an interactive book. So that's why they pulled it off Kindle. So by putting a book on Amazon, does it have to go onto Kindle too, or did you submit it to Kindle? Yeah, we submitted it to Kindle, and then you could also buy hard copies. Um, but we did it for Kindle because, again, it's one of the, the ways to get a bestseller. Is if anyone's got um, Kindle Unlimited, mm-hmm. they can download it for free as part of them. So that's that's and that goes towards the algorithm of ranking. yeah, and that's how um, a lot of these entrepreneurs actually exploit that loophole. You can buy your own book, for God's sake, right? So yeah. if I wanted to, we didn't buy our own copies because uh, we wanted to really test it. We didn't want to sort of yeah. like skew the results. Yeah. But um, I could ask you two to buy 15 Kindle copies because you can buy 15 of them and then donate them to your friends. I could buy 15 and you could have a number one. So, But really, the lesson there was if only me, my mum and my nan buy 15 copies of my Kindle and I now say I'm a crypto expert, I could then be on stage at a, a tour, an event, like a mentoring event or um, I don't know, an expert event positioning myself as an Amazon bestseller in the crypto sector and you would buy into that or someone would buy into that and then put that on top with fake testimonials and you know manipulative marketing and before you know it I could be fleecing thousands out of people it was really it was just to expose that part of that sort of entrepreneur's formula is what I like to call it yeah where did that kind of moral side of you come from 
Um, I don't know really. There's there's been sort of no single moment. Like, <laughs> it was from a selfish point of view. Yeah. It was from a selfish place. So, uh, um, if I'm honest, and that was because when I was going to get financial advice from different people and I wanted to talk about different investment, um, to invest in different assets or opportunities to invest, it just didn't seem right, some of the stuff they're saying. And I always used to ask the same question. So if you're telling me to invest in the Cayman Islands or invest in gold or invest in stocks and shares or crypto, don't tell me what returns I could get. You show me how much of your own money you've put into this investment. Because if it really will give me 100%, 200%, 60% return on investment, every single spare penny you've got you would be putting into that yeah. if you really believed in it. And I saw 16 different people and not one of them could actually would be willing to open their bank account and show me how much they invest in their own asset. So it was that really. So I started it probably to sort of protect myself a little bit more or shine a light on what I was doing. And also there's loads of shit on the uh, YouTube and on the internet to tell you how to grow your business, how to scale your business, how to become a millionaire, whether or not you will or not, you know, the stats will show that one in 500 people yeah. do, but there's loads of that content because that's an easy thing to sell to people. There wasn't much content on what would you actually do if you did have 2 million, 3 million, 4 million, 5 million in your bank account, yeah. like what happens next? And I found that part of my story or journey, whatever you want to call it, difficult because I couldn't talk to friends about it because all of a sudden what have you got to feel down about with that money in your bank account? Like now I'm immune to being ill. I'm immune to feeling a bit down, sad and all these types of things. So I thought, well, why don't I try and make the content I wish was out there? And I know if you've got a hundred grand in your bank account or 200 grand in your bank account and someone's telling you you can get 91% return buying a crypto mining rig, you might invest your money in that. And there's not going to be many people that have done that and would give you an unbiased review on their returns because... I can, because I'm not trying to make you buy them. Do you know what I mean? I'm not trying to convince you to yeah, sign up yeah. to my affiliate program to sell crypto mining rigs. And I just felt there was nothing unbiased online everywhere. It was, it was either affiliate links. It was, And I just thought, does anyone give unbiased reviews anymore? No, not unless there's something in it for them. I don't trust anything now online, really. I always look at, you know, how are they linked to the product they're selling or promoting? So, so I just started making that content. So you sold your company for, was it $11 million? Yeah, so we always say, so it was a little, people always say that on YouTube. Oh, you say it was 8 million, you say it was 11 million. It's like, yeah, they use two different fucking currencies. Yeah. <laughs> like, so it, it was an American company that bought it for $11 million. It was 8 million proper pounds. Right. So, yeah. And so with with that cash injection you're like okay what how do i how do i invest this for my future yeah. and there's there's literally no cuz i mean I, one thing i was going to ask you is like i've i've heard you mention before about um investing in stocks and shares and you've got a financial advisor yeah. to do that if i google financial advisor like you can't find anything because everything you get like just is red flags all over the place every yeah. if you google financial advisor there's just people who want your money and yeah, so I suppose that's where that's where why you're doing this is because you're trying to invest your own money, and a Google search is just bringing up stuff that's kind of setting off red flags for you. Yeah, yeah, definitely that. So my financial advisor, I've been quite lucky. So I went to go see a financial advisor. So the people who helped with the sale of my business, they also had a wealth management department or function, and um. Again, they knew we had the money then. So all of a sudden it was like, oh, this is going to be set up fees. This yeah. is going to be the fees involved. So it wasn't like we were going there and they didn't know. They knew exactly how much money we had. And I kind of felt like they adjusted their fees to suit us. Like if I'd gone in there and said, I've just sold my business for 600,000 or 60,000, I have a feeling that their fees would have been less yeah. Yeah, to win yeah. my business. 
And it was just like, it was things like that. And it just kind of was annoying me that it sounds like everyone was trying to cash in on your new sort of found wealth and wanted their piece. And it just, um, but while I was there, I met this guy and I asked him genuinely, what's the number one criteria you think for getting a financial advisor? And I asked the financial advisor that. So if you were me, what? And he said, relationship, you've got to trust your financial advisor. And he said that. And he said, and that's what's great about you, Mike. You know, we've worked together for the last 18 months. We've helped with all your accounts and stuff. But my best friend is a financial advisor and a wealth manager. And he's been my best friend for 10 years. So that's who I used to be my financial advisor. Like I was asking him because it was a free service available to me. But then he said the number one criteria is your relationship with him. And interestingly, when the wealth management company that were also part of the accounting firm that we used, the accounting firm that we used, they wanted to charge me a 5% setup fee. So if you wanted to invest 100 grand, they'd take five grand off your upfront, you know, 10 grand, you know for 200,000, whatever it might be. My best mate said, and this goes back to saying about, I didn't have people to talk to once I got money, because then you you kind of, people look at you differently. People say you change, and sure you do change a little bit, but how they view you also changes. And I don't think people take that into consideration or whatever. My mate waived all fees, all setup fees, and now charges me a friends and family. So I pay like 0.5% as a management fee per year where they want to charge me 5% setup fee and 2.5% management fee. And I said, but you don't have to do that, mate. And he's like, he's just said, I'm so happy that I'm doing this for you and I know you and it's someone I care about. Why would I want to make money on the management fee? He goes, I want to. And he said, also, you know, you're my mate. So why would I, why would I want to think oh, I can make 10 grand off my mate? He said, so... We ended up going on holiday, paid for us to go to Ibiza. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. How does someone find someone like him if they don't have one? Because obviously the internet's Yeah, if your best mate's not on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would honestly say sort of word of mouth or recommendation from somebody else that's used yeah. someone is probably the best. If someone's screaming at you from a, a lime green Lamborghini or in a six-second uh, YouTube ad trying to get your attention, chances are they're not getting people's attention because of how good the product or services uh, that they're offering. So I would say don't go and look at who's the loudest, who's the shiniest, who's, the, who's been around the longest, and then who do you know? So you might know someone that owns a business. Well, what, who, same with getting an accountant. Go and find someone in business and say, who do you use for your accountants? Yeah. And then, you know, like that, all right, okay. And same with mentors. You don't have to pay for a mentor. Go and talk to people in your industry and befriend them. Don't think of people as competitors all the time. Do you know what I mean? And you'll be amazed how many people will help you for free and there's nothing in it for them. They're harder to find, but they've got your best interests at heart rather than, you know, a mentor mentoring a thousand people, charging you all 10 grand each. Does he really care about your business? Yeah, because I feel like you've only got so much time in a day to put out in mentoring. So you can only ever help so many people at a time. Well, a good enough service. So I know um, I spoke to a guy called James Sinclair. I don't know. I spoke to him on my podcast. He does a lot of stuff for like kids play parks and nurseries and soft plays and that type of stuff. And he does mentoring. That's like a sort of extra thing that he does. And he said it was good for like meeting people and um, opportunities it can bring him. And I said to him, but surely you can't give a good service. And he said, no, that's why he only mentors four people at any one time. He said, otherwise I can't add value. But I think what a lot of these things, especially online do, they strip it out. It's almost like a paint by numbers thing to follow. So you're not getting a personalized service. It's almost like, well, have you tried this step? No. And then you get palmed off onto other people to be your actual mentor. But what you'll find is those people are just you, but about three months further along in the process. They joined the group six months ago, and now they're the mentor, but they've become part of the problem or part of the scam rather than 
part of the solution, in my mind anyway. That reminds me of being at school, I remember we had a uh, physics teacher left and a new guy came in who wasn't from a teaching background. And I remember realizing that, because I was really inquisitive, I was asked ask loads of questions. He couldn't answer the questions, but he could tell me what was two or three pages ahead in the book compared to where we were then. And it got to a stage when I just stopped going to the lessons because I could read forward myself in my own time and get more ahead than I could by, because he'd obviously just go home, read the next three pages, memorize that, and then come back and teach us. That's teaching explained to anyone that's listened to this. Yeah. That's, that's what happens at school. But weirdly on that, just a, a mad little story. So uh, I went to um, boarding school in North Wales and we used to call it Divinity, but it was RE, so not like, so it was okay. RE basically. Yeah, we called it that as well. Divinity. I've never yeah. heard that Mad before. That, yeah, no, yeah. I've, not, I've not met anyone else that does yeah. call it that. It's weird. So yeah, so we called it Divinity, but it was basically religious studies. Yeah. And um, he was also our physics teacher. So on like a Tuesday, he was telling us, you know, oh, like yeah. the, the Big Bang. And on Thursday, something's like, God created the earth in seven days and stuff. And it's just like, your heart's not really in it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, just pick one, you know. But yeah, so it just made you think they will literally read whatever's put down in front of them. It's a mad, it's just school's mad, isn't it? The way you learn and stuff, it's crazy. Yeah. How was, uh, how was school for you? Um, all right. I went to boarding school for age seven. So I was young and my mum and dad lived in Germany. I was born in Germany, lived over there. And, uh, I just didn't like my school in Germany, so I ended up. I was um, my brother and sister didn't go to boarding school, so I was the only one. So, so were you the only one who came to England? Uh, so they stay? they would move. So every like two or three years in the army, you move. So sometimes oh, okay. they'd be in England for two years, and then they'd be back in Germany. So they've moved around a lot. But I sort of was the only one that had fixed schooling for any sort of length of time. So a lot of people talk about, and I think it's bullshit, but I'd be interested to hear what you think. Um, a lot of people talk about this like entrepreneurial DNA. Yeah. Do you feel like you've got that? Do you think it's bullshit? Uh, yeah, I think I think people look for things like that. You know, it's, it's it, I think it is. Listen, it, everyone sold something at school. Everyone sold chocolate at school. It doesn't mean you're an entrepreneur. Yeah, Everyone's yeah, washed yeah, cars yeah. in the summer. <laughs> I think they latch onto that. Yeah, I, I hear a lot of bullshit like that, especially online. It's part of everyone's story, isn't it? Um, same with like the drugs and alcoholism. I mean, like everyone's got wasted at parties before. That's yeah. not, do you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. everyone's been bullied. Well, no, everyone's been called names at school. There's a big difference. Do you know what I mean? I think sometimes people lean too much on that, but that entrepreneurial DNA, I mean, some people naturally be more organized and some people be naturally risk takes and stuff. There's certain elements that will make them sort of steer towards that. But let's get it right. A lot of entrepreneurs, they're that because they're unemployable. No one will put up with their arrogance or their yeah. bullshit or their the full of self-importance and all that stuff. That gets tiring for employers. Eventually you have to set up on your own because, you know. So I think, I don't necessarily think there's, there's that much in that, but everybody says the same shit, don't they? You know? Yeah, because I mean, for for me, like I I didn't ever think about doing anything until I was 27. Yeah. Um, and that's that's a, like a long time of like out of school, just doing nine to five shit jobs. And then, and then it wasn't until I was 27 where I was like, something's got to change here because I can't and I'm looking at people that I'm working with when I'm doing like part-time jobs and stuff because I, I was always like I'm never getting a full-time proper job because I can't I just can't do it I looked at everyone who I was working with when I was part-time and they were just dead inside and you could yeah. just see it they were broken I was like I can't ever do that so that was when it was kind of out of necessity I was like I've got to I've got to try and do something on my own well, I think there's there's that there's that moment with everybody and I think sometimes it's having a child for a lot of people, they think, oh, shit, I really need to knuckle down now because everyone messes about in their jobs. I had, I didn't go in for about maybe 15, 16 Mondays in a row because I used to go out clubbing and stuff. Yeah, so it's yeah. like Monday, I was like, I'm not coming into work. Yeah. 
as soon as I had a child, it's like, oh, I can't keep doing this now. And then it's like, right, no, now I don't want to be working in a call center for... And that's not because there's anything wrong with those yeah. jobs. It, it's the same thing as you said. It wasn't... It's just... I was talking to people there that had been doing that for 15, 16, 17 years. It's like, I hate doing this for a week at a time. Yeah. And, um, but my actual turning point where I thought I can't get a proper job for me was when I was 21, 22, I got a job in HSBC in Chester. And on my third day, there was a guy there called Kevin. He probably still works, I'm not sure. But <laughs> he was looking through a brochure. Um, and it had all different items in there, you know, like watches and all this kind of stuff, golf clubs, uh, lawnmowers and stuff like that. And I said, oh, what are you doing, Kevin? And he said, oh, I've been here for 30 years now. And he said, so I'm allowed to pick as his reward anything out of this catalogue. And I was oh like, oh, my right. God. And I said, what are you picking? Bear in mind, I've only been there three days. What are you picking? He went, oh, I'm going to get this. And he, he got himself a sit, sit on lawnmower <laughs> and he was made up with that. Now, don't, and don't get me wrong, back in them days, he'd probably be on a good pension and stuff like that. Yeah. The bank was probably seen as a job for life and a good, especially to his mom, that yeah. probably would have been 60 yeah. or whatever. Do you know what I mean? And I just realized that day, I'm not working here. Like, I want more. He had a brooch as well. He got to wear like a gold brooch. So like, um, <laughs> like a gold brooch and a lawnmower was, you, if you've given the best that is your life to an organization, I kind of want to be in a position to do this. And I think it was more the choice of being able to do what I wanted to do rather than, you know, it's quite smart on the on the part of HSBC by the the gold brooch of like the status of yeah. like yeah, yeah I've I've been here that long and people I guess aspiring within the company to be there that amount of time, yeah. but it is kind of a bit depressing like you get to also get as to a cashier I was a cashier and I was seeing different people paying and I was seeing builders you know paying in cash and this was when this was back before you know financial crisis or recession yeah, yeah. builders be dropping in like seven eight nine ten eleven twelve grand yeah. a day sometimes and i was thinking well i'm a cashier here for 11 grand that was a cashier at hsbc it was 11 grand back then and i had a degree by the way so that was another thing it's like oh i got a degree for what it's like 11 yeah. grand and i was so i was in chester but i lived in warrington so i was driving an hour back and two so every day i was working out my days it was like eight till six and it was like for 11 grand i just thought this is madness yeah you know it's madness back then like if someone had said to me, oh, I could earn 13 grand, 14 grand, I'd have moved. And that's what I think you do when you're young. It's like, oh, I'll move for two grand pay rise, three yeah, grand pay rise. Yeah. As you get a bit older, you, you, you know, I think you take into consideration other things. I definitely do now. I turn down big money to do stuff if I just don't want to do it or it doesn't seem right. Or, And that's not just because I sold my business. I was like that anyway. I'd turn down clients regardless of money. If it just didn't... I used to say, take the money out of the equation. Did you, are they a ball ache? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if the answer is, yeah, don't work with them. Yeah, that's a yeah, great piece of advice. Yeah. At uh, what point did you decide to start something on your own? So I worked in startups then. This is a weird thing because I think sometimes, because from when I set up my real business, like my own business, and then sold, it was two and a half years from beginning to end. So in theory, that's very quick to get that sort of results that we got. And I think that's sometimes what people look at. Well, if you could do it in two and a half years, why can't I? But I went and worked in startups for six years before I got to that point. So I had seen almost from day one, in uh, one of the startups, I was like the first employee there. So I saw it from like literally just sat around a small table to then growing, having 35 staff and stuff like that. I'd seen how you had to wing it. I had to be able to do every function in the business. I saw what didn't work, what did work, you know, what type of marketing worked when they didn't have any money, what type of marketing worked when they did have some money. You know, I saw the highs and lows of startups 
for six years before I felt confident enough to I, I could have a crack at this. Yeah. What kind of businesses were they? Um, so one was in telecommunications. It was a franchise of BT called BT Local Business. Okay. So uh, I was in there and they were really new at the time. So it, it was almost like a specialized team. So that's where I learned about sort of telesales, account management and outbound that stuff. But you were protected by having a big brand, you were BT or whatever. And then I left there to go to a company that had a single page website and had no staff. And my boss at BT, uh, who is one of my sort of mentors, if you want to call him that, I still keep in touch with him now. He said I was crazy to leave that business for a, a brand new startup. But I just said I thought the opportunities to learn there was better and grow because they had no staff. So in theory, I know you shouldn't base sort of promotion on this, but if you're the first person in, every single person that's been brought, af- brought in after you, you're naturally seen as senior to them. So I thought, well, in BT, you're I'm just a guy on the phone. Yeah. Yeah. There, I'm like, oh, you're the guy that designed the sales. You're the guy that sort of wrote this, the marketing email. So I learned so much more about business in those four years at, uh, it was called Legal for Landlords. They were a sort of legal services provider. And then the best thing about that position that I got myself in, because I was sort of running the sales team, was they franchised their business. So then every time a new franchisee came on board, I would go and have to spend a week with them to set up their business. So I was then setting up businesses for all over the country for new um, franchisees. So I was seeing the sort of startup process over and over again. And then after about a year doing that, I just thought I'm building other people's businesses every week here. Why don't I just go and do it? So I picked a completely different sector. I had no experience in any learning. I just thought it was a, a market that was ripe for, I hate the word, but disruption. Because yeah. only because you could give a real alternative. What was happening in that industry at the time was nothing like what it was now. But we were, the f- in my mind, I think we were the first ones to kind of introduce that and what, model. What kind of like stands out for you as like this is a market to target? Um, there was lots of things, right? So I always look, can you make it once and sell it many times? Because I think if you're doing a lot of bespoke work, you are basically you're putting yourselves in a position to be an employee for someone else, especially if you've got one big client that then wants you to work for them for three months. While it's good and the money might be good, you are essentially now their employee. Mm-hmm. So I wanted something where you could build something once and then sell it many times. So I thought of creating content on a platform and it could be accessed by anybody. So I would pick soft skills and then make it as available to... What's a soft skill? Communicating effectively or time management or stuff like that. Yeah. So, um, you know, just for sort of employee uh, training. Yeah, yeah. So that was the plan, really. So we just looked at what are the top 10 requested skills on a job spec and then thought, well, you know, how can you won't have a GCSE in time management or you won't yeah. have a GCSE in, you know, effective communication. Yeah. So what was out there looked and then it was just e-learning courses. But e-learning courses back then were just multiple choice, click next. And all people do is click next, 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 next. Guess at the yeah. questions, go back. Yeah. And then the idea came from, if anything happens in real life and I want to know how to do something, it could be anything. It could be how to make, I don't know, beer chicken on a barbecue or whatever. You watch it on YouTube. Like you literally watch a, a 90 second yeah. video on YouTube. So I just thought, why do we learn at work or why are we forced to learn at work in a completely different style to what we'd learn at home? I think it's, and the, the truth was, it was tech geeks making e-learning. It was people that knew how to learn the software but didn't understand anything about learning yeah. for the most part. So we just thought, why don't we just convert e-learning into small bite-sized animated explainer videos and almost admit that e-learning isn't the best form of training in the world experience and uh, learning on the job is the best way to learn so why don't we just make e-learning that supports that rather 
other e-learning companies have thought about this is the best e-learning in the world. Like, no, you're not going to learn how to drive a forklift truck from multiple choice questions. Yeah. You're going to learn from doing it. So why don't you just you know, sort of suggest an idea or introduce a new concept through e-learning, but then go and put that concept into practice on the shop floor. So that was the, the process. But in terms of how we picked the sector, was it underserviced? Um, was there a chance to offer a real alternative? Could you have a subscription-based model? Could you build it once? And was there potential partners? And it ticked all the boxes for that. And that's what we did. So that's something we've always talked about in our business, isn't it? Is that our, our kind of ability to scale is always limited because there's only a certain amount of artists on the planet who can produce artwork to the to the kind of standard yeah. that that needs that needs to be done so it's not we've always thought that um sort of yeah the next step to our business will be when we when we truly like find that kind of thing that is um you scalable yeah scalable yeah because I, I, we used to have a quote on our wall which was bespoke is bullshit and um it's so tempting so is one kind of story to i was talking about money before we hadn't took a wage. We weren't paying ourselves for like the first six months at all. But we had staff, so we were paying them. So any money that came in, and we used to, I think that made us hungrier anyway. We didn't have any investment. So literally, you eat what you kill. So you yeah. had to make a sale. You have to make worse. It's amazing how, I think nowadays, a lot of businesses fail because they go on these funding websites and they get the funding. They're like, oh, wow, we've raised three million in um, funding. Yeah. Great. But now you're going to sit there and pay yourself a wage. You're not thinking now, that's, you've not even done step one there. All you've done is got funding for the, right? We were making the product with no money. We were marketing the product with no money and we were selling it. You know, if we didn't sell it, we didn't eat that month or we didn't pay the bills and we were in trouble some. But then out of the blue, um, Google came along and said, oh, we've seen one of your videos on YouTube. And this was, oh, I wish I knew what I know about YouTube now back yeah. then because we could have made a lot of money because we yeah. had some videos that were doing like a quarter of a million views and stuff. But um, we didn't even monetize the channel at all because we thought, what's the point? Like, you know, we didn't know anything about it, yeah. stupidly, naively, really. But then, um, offered us 90 grand. Now, if you've not paid yourself a wage for six months and someone offers you 90 grand, you'd take it. But because it didn't fit our model, which was we wanted to make content that could be used by multiple companies, so we turned that 90 grand down and continued making content that we were selling at £350 a month, which is mad, really, when you think about it. But, and that was the first time we had a sort of disagreement as a, as a group in the business. It was like, no, let's do this. It's like, but it doesn't. We used to have a saying, does it make the boat go faster? And if it didn't make the boat go faster, we didn't do it. And that was like, we always looked towards our end goal and doing a three month contract with Google, even for 90 grand, it just didn't help our business at the time. So it took us away from our goal rather than towards yeah. it. And do you think you made the right choice there? Uh, well, hindsight says yes. Though, I mean, there was times after that point, you know, month nine, month 12, month 15, where I thought, oh, that. That, <laughs> nice, yeah. that Google money would have helped, but it turned out to be the right thing to do. And I think a lot of people don't do that in business either. They don't look at what they ultimately want, even success in everyday life. Uh, you know, people, you know, you ask people what you want to be, I want to be successful. And you say, well, what is successful? And they can't actually define that. Now, success to you might be earning a hundred grand a year. Like success to you might be working three days a week. Like they're both success, but they're completely different things. Someone might want to, I want to be there to pick my kids up at three o'clock and drop them off at school. Yeah. That's success to them. So cool. If that's what you want to do, then how much money do you need to survive? Well, now, how do you earn that money in, you know, two less hours a day? You know, job done. You're successful. And, and there's ways of doing all these things. But people, I think, think that you have to follow this formula. It's not, there's no sort of one size fits all, I don't think. What's success to you? Right now, do you know what I felt uh, sort of 
maybe it's rose tinted glasses and stuff. The weird thing about getting a big lump sum of money is I got a lump sum of money that I see reducing in number every month. And that is a far more stressful to me position to be in than when I was earning a regular wage that came in. But my happiest time or when I felt the richest, if that's the right thing to say, it might come across as a bit crude, was when I started paying myself 10,000 a month, 10 grand a month. Because weirdly, it was a figure that I couldn't get through a month. I couldn't spend 10 grand a month. I always had, say, four, five, six grand left at the end of the month. So I was putting it in a savings account and I was doing to property investing. So it was almost like, well, in four months' time, I can put a deposit down on a terrace house. It was so easy to manage that because it it was like having unlimited money. Yeah. You know, it's a working class lad to get given 10 grand a month, like to get paid 10 grand a month. It was, it was like mind blowing at the time. And I felt rich then. I felt more rich then than I did when I got like two million dropped in my bank account overnight. Like that was nice for a week. But then after that, it was like, shit, you can't leave it there now because I'm making 0.9% in interest. Inflation's 3%. So I'm actually losing money, that money being in the bank. Fuck. Which again, people don't think of. I think people think if you make a million quid, I'll live off the interest. Well, yeah. No, you won't. Because, <laughs> yeah. because you make nine grand a year. Well, you know, That's what you're making there. I think people think you're making 40, 50 grand, but yeah. also... It's a different life that that you that you become accustomed to, especially when you're earning ten grand a month. All of a sudden, it's like, oh well, making like I need ten grand a month to sustain the lifestyle that I've now become used to. So I need to find a way of making this two million produce ten grand a month, and that's near on impossible at the moment. You know, as I'm finding out now. You know, and I've done lots of different things to try and achieve that. So day one, two million lands in your bank account. What's day two look like? I had a barbecue at my ass. But the mad <laughs> thing about it was, so I got the money on the Friday and it, um, it was, we were bought by a company on the NASDAQ. So it had to be announced to, on, on the stock market and stuff. And uh, so we weren't allowed to announce it at all till the Monday, we weren't allowed to put anything out on social media. So I wasn't allowed to say anything. But um, we just had a barbecue around our house and some friends come around. Uh, and that was it. So day two was that. The very, do you want to know what the very first thing was that I did? So I, I had a Ford Focus. And um, weirdly, I kept that car up until about six months ago. So for like the first 18 months of being a million, I still drove around on a 13-plate Ford Focus, like the secret millionaire. But um, <laughs> but only because I got, someone says, well, why don't you buy yourself a new car? I said, I only drive to work. Yeah, but I don't work anymore. So if anything, I, I, I don't actually need the yeah, car yeah, that yeah, I've yeah. got, let, let alone go and buy a better car. It didn't make any sense to me. So my uh, father-in-law at the time had lent me um, 14 grand to buy that car and I was paying him back at 250 quid a month so it was almost like an interest free loan so the first thing I did was pay him the full lot back and give him an extra 250 quid uh, <laughs> with interest yeah so oh, there you go <laughs> but do you know what he said to me he said oh you paid me too much I think you paid me 250 so he was obviously tracking how much I'd paid yeah. him to the penny so so I did that and then I um, paid off I had an apartment in Warrington that had I think 43,000 left on the mortgage I just paid that off as well and that's what I know it sounds boring. I was just literally paying off chunks of properties that I, I sort of in, invested in over the, the few years. So, proper so, boring. So, money doesn't buy happiness then? Uh, no, I actually say um, I have been more unhappy since that happened. Uh, it's a weird one. You know, uh, do you watch like Joe Rogan podcast? Yeah. The best example or the best, someone that said it better than I can was Tyson Fury when he was on the Joe Rogan podcast. 
all his life he'd been building up to become heavyweight champion. And then when you achieve that thing, it becomes fucking empty. You've got sort of no meaning. You lose your identity. I was Mike, a guy that ran a business, and I was like the e-learning guy. That was like my thing. And I was just say, like sales, sales, sales. When I achieved it, I got the money, and we got told, so we didn't even have to do a workout, so I didn't have to come into work uh, after the Monday which is unusual when a sale goes through. Normally they want like a sort of 12-month, two-year handover, but yeah. we, we didn't have to do that. You'd, you'd kind of negotiated that beforehand, though, yeah, yeah. You, of if you buy the business, we're not going to be a part yeah, of it. Yeah, so one of the things w- when we were selling um, is we replaced ourselves in the business, preparing ourselves for that moment. So if someone wants us to do a workout, we can almost say, oh, you don't need to. This is a turnkey business. Yeah. I'm not needed in the sales function. He's not needed in the production team. He's not needed as the MD or whatever it might be. So, So that was like a... We planned for that. Uh, again, that's another thing that a lot of people don't think of when they're, you know, they create themselves a job rather than a business that they can step out of, and it runs without them. So that was one of the smarter things that we did. But yeah, so we knew we had an idea that we we're going to sell the business in three years for ten million. That was the goal, and everything we did was leading up to that. And while we believed in it, when it actually happens, it's a weird kind of feeling. Right? <laughs> so and it happened. Well, as close as it was two and a half years, eight million, and it happened. But when you meet people in real life, they say to you, what do you do? And I realized I don't do anything now, apart from sound like a wanker when I say, oh, well, actually, I had a business that I sold for. Because it makes it sound like you're bragging, even though that's the truth. But then also, I wasn't a property investor, though I did invest in properties, but I didn't want that to be my thing because then you get "Mm, landlords, you know, it's affordable homes for people and stuff like that. But it's like, so I didn't want any of that. So I kind of felt like I lost my identity. And also I didn't have any clear goal. And my mind's quite, you know, destructive if I'm not busy. And um, I found it quite hard. And then especially when there's sort of, uh, so I'd take my kids to school, drop them off at school every day. And it wasn't long before the, oh, well, uh, you don't need to worry about that on your type of money kind of comments started. Yeah. And then before you know it, and then there were friends that I thought were friends that suddenly weren't friends with me anymore. Uh, even normal conversations like, so I might be walking to school with my mate who's two lives two doors down, kids are in the same class, they knock on every day walk to school. And a normal conversation might be, I can't believe it, the boiler's broke. But oh, fucking hell, mate, how much is that going to cost to sort out? And you might go, oh, it's 300 quid. Now that's a normal conversation you might have when I sold my business and I had the money, that conversation then became weird because then you don't know yourself. Are they asking me for 300 yeah. quid here? And then you don't know if they're not talking to you about these things because they don't want you to think that you're asking for money. And there's a kind of weird, almost like there's an elephant in the room. And there was things where things would get said and he's like, oh, I'm going to have to get a bank... Like, Different, these are different people, but it's not the same person. It's having like really unlucky uh, sort of life with his house <laughs> and that loads of... But like another guy was telling me, blah, blah, blah. He's like seven grand in debt. He needs to sort it out. Credit card debts, blah, blah, blah. He's going to have the bailiffs knocking on his door. And you're sat there and you know you've got money in the bank. But at the same time, you can't go around helping all these people. Because if you do that, then you won't, you'll be working again in six months' time. Yeah. And that's the bit I don't think people realize either. And all of a sudden, it felt like, I'm finding it hard just to talk about normal shit here. And that wasn't me changing. And also, I was going through a house sale at the time as well. I was already selling my house. My house was uh, already buying a house. I was uh, been waiting six months to move in the house. But my kids still went to the same school. So I was driving to the old area. 
oh, as soon as you sold your business and you moved house, you think you're better than everyone. But I like I put the offer in that house January, six months before I even knew I was selling the business. It was just weird shit like that, that it gets tiring having to, and it's like their head shit. You know, you know, people say you've changed. Oh, you, you might have changed, but honestly, if you don't change when you get given an opportunity like that, then you're a fucking idiot. Yeah. You've got to change. Yeah, it's, it's such a touchy subject, isn't it? And and I mean, anyone in your, well, I was going to say anyone in your position, but um, from the sounds of it, you, like you planned, you, you, you guys had a three-year plan of, and you didn't deviate from it, no matter if Google were offering money or whatever, you, you stuck to your guns. Yeah. Yeah. How important do you think that it was to have that vision at the start? Do you reckon if you didn't say in three years we're going to sell for 10 million, you would have? Um, it's a strange one to try. It's a strange one to work out, really, what would have happened. Um, I think at that point, yeah, I think there's a relationship between all of us. I think there was there was four of us in the business, and you've all you're all at different stages in life. You know, one of you's getting married, one of you's buying a. a a house, one of you is you know, invest yeah, in property. Yeah. The more of you involved in a business and as you go through, you're all reading from a different page slightly. And I think you all need different amounts of money at different amounts of time. And you want to take the business in different directions. I think it was coming to a natural end anyway for us as a four. And that wasn't because we fell out or anything like that. I just think it's just life, isn't it? You know, yeah. you sort of outgrow each other they'll say the same about me as well you know the other three lads will, will probably say and um so i think we were sort of we were looking well we were looking because that was the plan but i think if it wasn't the plan we probably would have started looking around that time anyway um so yeah and the same thing was saying focusing on an end goal we weren't naive enough to not you know well actually we didn't think of that, but that benefits us in a slightly different way and it gets us to our goal quicker or whatever like that. So there's certain things that accelerated our journey to our final goal, but we were always clear on that and it made everything easier in terms of pricing, how many clients do we need, what partners do we need, and also potentially who could buy us. So how do we get on their radar now? If we want to sell in three years' time, that could be a two-year process for them. So we need to be on their radar. We need to show them our products, show them how we can complement them, but not even talk about a sale let them almost discover us themselves. That was a big thing. They almost need to think it's their idea. Oh, we've got this dead expensive learning platform, but shit content. You've got really good content. If we, well, yeah, why do you think we spoke to you six months ago? Yeah. That, that was what we wanted to do, but we didn't want to say, hey, we want you to buy us because then it's not on a level playing field. There's, you're going there cap in hand. So we, we had two strategies. We deliberately targeted some people's client base so they could potentially buy us out to protect their business. And then we also partnered some of their competitors and worked with them in a sort of friendly way. So then they would think, well, we don't want our competitors having your product. So they would see us as, oh, that's a great fit. And they would say, no, we need to, we need to buy these because they're taking all our customers yeah. away. And um, that, it was one of the people that we partnered with that ended up buying us. So, uh, and you know, we worked with some of their biggest competitors, especially in America. So really we'd put up some of the biggest people against themselves. So. That was a smart way of doing it. Dual strategy when we were coming to sell. So, and all your bases covered. Yeah. So, um, so now you've moved into inventing the mic, winning character, and uh, how how are you spending your days now? Um, at the moment, I am uh, sort of parodying some of the gurus on LinkedIn, some of their content and stuff like that. But um, investing my own money into these get rich quick schemes is like the sort of day to day job. So I'm actually doing. 
Amazon FBA, I'm actually doing affiliate marketing, I'm doing crypto mining, investing cryptocurrencies and running all that stuff and then recording our actual results and then putting them out on YouTube. So we've put in 500,000 into this, which is mad really when I think about it. Um, when you when you sold your business, like how, how important to you was uh, having a LinkedIn presence or an Instagram presence or likes, comments and shares? How much did that affect the bottom line of selling um, your business? So I never had any social media at all uh, before LinkedIn. LinkedIn was my only social media platform and it was my only social media platform up until November last year. And for the business, actually for um, when I was doing Learning Heroes, it was essential. Like 80, between 85 and 90% of all our customers came through LinkedIn. So when people say, can you get business on LinkedIn? From my own personal experience, LinkedIn made me a millionaire. Like if you can't find clients on LinkedIn, what are you doing? It, it's, I wouldn't say it's so easy, but how much organic reach you can get from there for very little cost, like no cost if you, if you don't even pay for their subscription service. But it's crazy. You've literally got a list of companies and the names of the contact that you want to sell your stuff to. If you can't work out how to use it, like what are you doing? Do you know what I mean? It's crazy. So LinkedIn was essential to what we did. Then when I sold the business, I was going to turn it off, but I used to talk in the mic when it turned on voice when I had the old business anyway. We were quite different with our marketing, a bit sort of edgy or whatever you want to call it. But um, I was going to turn it off because I couldn't be asked being on social media at all. And then I just, it just gave me a sort of window to the outside world because I would have been working again in a week's time because mm. I needed to do something. So I just found going on LinkedIn and then I kind of created the mic when it character is just a bit of a piss take just to sort of pass the day while I was doing other bits. I'd be on my laptop and I'd just do a few posts and that. And then, um, yeah, it kind of picked up and then it, it really sort of, I don't know what would you call it, grew exponentially. It's like I went to like 30,000 followers, then it was like 40, 50, 60, like 70 now. But it was crazy. It was getting like a thousand new followers a week. And it was like, weirdly, when I'm not selling anything. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's also a sort of a lesson that I learned now. It's like more people ask me what was it I actually did when I wasn't selling anything than when I did have a product to sell. And I think if anyone's listening to this and they're thinking about their content strategy on LinkedIn, that's one of the biggest things I would say. You know, don't be that guy that's screaming, saying, I'm this guy, I sell this. It's like, just be the guy that talks to the relevant people sort of as a valuable contribution, but just be front of mind when someone's looking for something. It's like, now I get asked, do you do this still? Do you do that still? Could you help me with this? And I have a point in the right direction or I say, oh, I might help you with that. I can help you with that. So, but yeah, so social media wasn't really asked. YouTube wasn't really asked too well. The only reason we started YouTube originally was because um, LinkedIn kept um, pulling my videos and content, kept deleting. So I just thought I didn't want to have all my eggs in one basket. Yeah. So we set up a YouTube channel just for somewhere to post videos. And then like, that grew. We're on 24,000 subscribers now. It's just mad, really. We're almost like, you know, we're too old to be doing the YouTube game, to be honest. Like, do you know what I mean? Middle-aged man. I think you'd be surprised, though. Yeah. So many people who are, like, smashing it on YouTube are over 30. Like, yeah. it's it's crazy. Like, you look at like people like Casey Neistat, Peter McKinnon, who've all got, like, millions and millions of followers. And they're all, you've, they've got life experience. I think that's where it comes from. Like, they've got the skills, they've fully learned it. And now, and they've also got the money to buy the gear and be able to, put on a good production yeah so i think yeah most people i follow even though their d demographic and their audience is probably quite young 
they're all like older. Well, when my dad uh, visited our studio a couple of weeks ago, he was uh, he was having a chat with one of our members of staff in the kitchen. And I was in there, I overheard, you know, when your dad says something, and you just cringe. <laughs> and he, and he, goes, uh, he goes to Becky, um, do, you, do you watch YouTube? And she's like, yeah, yeah, I watch YouTube, Sometimes. yeah. And he was like, oh, there's this video on there. My dad's 70, man, he loves it. He loves YouTube. He's always watching stuff on there. I think it's, it's uh, yeah, there is a lot of like young people content on there and there's a lot of kid vloggers and all of that sort of stuff. But I think it's, it's like, it's well mainstream. It's like, it's not yeah. this niche thing anymore where just kids are watching it in their bedroom. It's like, my dad watches it. So it's, it's, it's like, know. I use YouTube as a learning platform, not as yeah. just entertainment. And it's hard to learn from someone who hasn't done anything. Yeah. So it's like most people are going to be older because they've been doing this for 20, 30 years and they're someone, an expert. Someone described uh, what we do as edutainment. I'd never heard of that word before, edutainment. Yeah. So, but yeah, it wasn't designed to be. What I find myself, what I find sad is I've always been pretty good at, I just go and find the best example of what I want to achieve and then almost like mimic it and yeah. then see where I can sort of put my own spin on it or my head, no, I don't know add a little bit to it or make it my own. None of this stuff's rocket science. I mean, even in business, it's like, well, you want to, I don't know, you want the best, I don't know, banner on LinkedIn. Well, go and look at the one that looks the best and yeah. just go and copy it. Not exactly, but go and take those elements and make it your own. It's not It's not hard anyway. Um, but sometimes I'm looking at people's thumbnails and thinking, oh, I'm a grown man, but I know I'm going to have to put a white outline and a crazy face on and be a bit clickbait. And I, I hate that bit of it. I really hate that. Yeah. It's like, but then I also hate, say the entrepreneur formula video, that probably cost me about seven grand to make in terms of staying in hotels, paying tickets to go to, traveling, filming, editing, animation, time to do it. And it took maybe three, four weeks to finally do it all and put it out. Now, there's people opening blind bags, getting like millions and millions and millions of views. And they probably filmed that on just like a webcam and yeah. it took them like an hour unedited bang it out and they're making i don't know thousands and thousands of video and i've put out in my mind like a far superior product that no one watches <laughs> and i find that hard it's weirdly on any of these platforms even on linkedin even on youtube or any sort of content the sort of cruel irony or the cruel thing about it all is you've got to almost do your best work at the beginning when no one's watching to then get yourself in a position where three, four years down the line, you can put out any old shite yeah. and people like it. I mean, look at Gary Vee. He puts out a, a, a fire emoji, gets retweeted like 36,000 times. Yeah. He's adding zero value there, but it's because of all the other stuff he's put out that's put yeah. him in that position. So there's someone there that might, and it's the same on LinkedIn, you might put out the best, most heartfelt, valuable bit of content and it'll get 10 likes or three comments. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And But then like, Say like now you've got people on LinkedIn that have got nearly five hundred thousand, six hundred thousand followers, and they're putting out some absolute dross, and they're smashing your content hands down, and that's just the way of the world, isn't it? But yeah, no likes meant fuck all. Uh, to answer your question, sorry, <laughs> the likes—they're just vanity metrics. None of them pay the bills. The only one that I was really asked about is how much money can I make at the end of the month, because that's what pays my bills, and that means that we can reinvest in the business, grow the business. Yeah, I, I think the likes and shares are, are really important on LinkedIn and, and organic growth and all of that sort of stuff. But I think the one underutilized tool on LinkedIn is the, is the inbox. Yeah. No one sends any messages. Yeah. It's like reach out to people and, and start a conversation yeah. with them. Like it's all very well posting up your work or, or a video or whatever it is but, and getting a load of likes. But if 
you're not then contacting the people who are liking your stuff and turning them into a customer. Exactly that. And this is where I had a, a disagreement with a, a failed apprentice uh, star. I say failed. She got to the semifinals, but one of six. Is it really a semifinalist? I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but um, second to last episode. Yeah. But my point was, she was saying, this post has done really well. It's got like 60,000 likes. And I was like, and it was a picture of a trampoline that said tap here. I don't know if you've oh seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. You've got lights because you're fooling idiots, right? But idiots don't usually have buying power, right? So you're not actually gaining anything from that. I, I would rather get a post that got 200 likes and then I would go and say connect with those 200 people. If I was in business now, it's time consuming, but you do all the hard graph now and it makes it so much easier on your next post because you're now 200 more connections further up and 200 connections further up. Go and connect with all those people and then just start talking to them and just, you know, contribute to their posts. And then, you know, this is what I do or this is, oh, you've got that problem. I know a guy that can help you. You don't even have to sell your product to them. Yeah. Just put them in touch with the right people and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's so easy, but it just requires some sort of thought and actually doing it. But yeah, likes and shares or comments don't mean anything. It's like you've got to then go and convert them into... So if you had a post that had 20 likes on it, but then you got two sales off the back of it, I would say that's more successful than a 20,000 likes post. And But people get caught up on that. Yeah. And it's the same with businesses. Oh, I want that influencer because they've got 1.2 million followers. But he's got 30,000 followers in your niche. Like That's the guy you should be working with and giving him that 1.2 million money. Yeah. But they don't like... You know, Kim Kardashian is cool. She's got millions of followers, but, you know, are they all going to be able to buy what your product? Probably not. So yeah. really, it's kind of irrelevant, isn't it? That's yes. the world we live in now. It's funny, like, I do uh, portrait photography as well, and, like, I've just, like, shot the cover of a magazine, and the person I shot on that is, like, a kind of an Indian film star. She's got 11 million followers. But the people that I've got following me off the back of that are just young teenagers from India. Like, there's no... That's never going to turn into any money. Yeah. That's just, like... A complete vanity number based on these people who like they might like my content but i could never sell to them exactly whereas uh, if you get shared by a portrait photography page that's got maybe twenty thousand followers yeah. as opposed to 11 million you'll get valuable followers and you'll get a, a much higher number of followers yeah like there's a like a uk portraits page for example that has shared my work before and then i've had people contact me because they found me through that because they want a photographer in london and they've seen that this was posted in London from that page. So yeah, it's like, it's more about yeah who the audience is rather than just the numbers. Yeah, 100%, 100%. And that's, that's why I think, especially on LinkedIn, um, I talk about the pods quite a lot, but like the whole thing with the pods, it's like, yeah, but it's artificially boosted content. And it is, if you look at the stats, it is in India. Now there's nothing wrong with that if you've got a product you can sell to people in India, that's cool. But the fact that you can't and you haven't, it kind of makes it pointless in many ways. You know what I mean? So pods are where people are liking and commenting. Just engagement pods, yeah. yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. They're on all social media platforms and, you know, some people do need them to start off and that. But again, it's the problem with social media platforms. It's like, I think too many people want to be an influencer. Not, they don't really know what they want to influence or who they want to influence or what the message is. Why are you still in a pod three, four, five years down the line when you've got 100,000 followers? Like, what's the point? Are you collecting followers? Like, I delete about 40 to 50 connections every week. I just get rid of them just so I can connect with the next. Because I look at it like anyone that wants to connect with me now are probably more my target audience than the ones that connect with me four years ago. Yeah. So I basically bin off people that I don't recognize. I never see them comment, like, or share on my content. I just delete them, remove them. 
I don't have any problem with it either. Quite enjoy <laughs> it sometimes. Quite therapeutic. But yeah, and it's the same thing. Say if you've got a thousand connections in India and you've only got, like, say, five thousand connections in total, and your content gets shown to a section of your clients, that potentially your content's being wasted being shown to that audience. So then the algorithm is going to think your content shit. So you're better off having like a small core group of people that yeah. do engage with your content. But people overlook this stuff, I think. Yeah, I think that's why like buying likes and buying follows is just yeah. awful because Bullshit. yeah, if you're just going to get shown to people who no interest in whatever you're doing or they're not even real, then yeah, Instagram's just going to think, well, this is shit content. We so. can spot them a mile off on YouTube. So on YouTube, I see some accounts of 100,000 subscribers or 200,000 subscribers, but the videos have got like eight, nine, 10,000 views. It's like... We were getting eight, nine, ten thousand views when we had five thousand subscribers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're being viewed by people that haven't even subscribed. You're not getting viewed by your subscribers. And that doesn't add up to me. But again, it's vanity metrics. But off the back of it, they could probably then convince a big sponsor. Well, we've got two hundred. So I get why. Listen, dicks win, don't they? It's all set up to you. Don't you know? Uh, say drugs, cheats in sports, and performance enhancing drugs. Pods are just you know you're the Lance Armstrong of LinkedIn. Yeah. You know what I mean? You, you're winning, but you're cheating. So does it really count? You know? So I can't believe we've got this deep into the interview without asking this question, but um, we've mentioned it a couple of times. What's a contrepreneur? So a, a contrepreneur is basically someone that is uh, positioning themselves to be really successful and offering you a way to riches, get rich quick. Um, if you just buy their course, attend their seminar or sign up to their mentoring program. And quite often, whisper it, they've not made as much money doing the thing that they're teaching you. So it's your property guru that makes millions of pounds a year from telling you how to invest in property, but he doesn't invest in property. It's like, you know, he's teaching you things that he can't even do himself successfully, you know. Um, and you get him in all walks of life, whether it be crypto, um, drop shipping, affiliate marketing, you name it, you know, YouTube channel. There's gurus telling you how to make money from your podcast. So they're all entrepreneurs, really. Um, and they, they share a lot of characteristics. Their marketing follows the same formula. Uh, they've always got a discount on their offer. Their webinars usually just about to start in 15 minutes and they'll have a, a countdown yeah. time. Exactly. But, but it's funny, isn't it, almost? And we're smarter now, aren't we? But I say we're smarter, but we're equally we're more stupid at the same yeah. time. Some of us are wiser to what's going on, but then also there's a whole group of more gullible people I suppose yeah. especially with the internet growing all the time and more people getting on it and like discovering stuff there's going to be more people who like for us who've been on the internet for years and fully understand it it seems obvious yeah we've seen them we've seen them explode especially the last few years like if you're just getting onto like the internet now if you're like a 14 15 16 year old lad coming on the yeah. internet now, you think that everyone that's 23 has a, has a lamborghini you know but what's mad is as well because i've been studying this now for nearly two years they follow the same scripts, even in their adverts. Are you still working the nine to five grind? And I'll see that advert on multiple videos and it'll be a Chinese woman saying it, it'll be a guy in Sweden saying it, it'll be an American guy saying it, an Australian guy saying it, but word for word, it's the same script. Um, but they'll get taught by the same person, you know, or, or the same types of people. And it was just that really. So that is a entrepreneur. And I was sat at an event and a few things didn't add up. And then I was thought I'd just follow that guy around and see him at his other events to see if he said and did the things that he said. And um, it was funny. I'll never offer this, you know, deal again. And it was exactly the same deal he was offering at the next one. And then I'd see the same um, testimonials at different events. So it's like paid for testimonials that go around us. So there's plants in the audience. Plants in the audience, fake testimonials, fake... I've seen gurus ask for a five-star review for their mentoring um, program. So you could qualify to maybe be selected for a mentoring program. 
So it's like, do you want my mentoring for free? I usually charge 12 grand. Well, go on to Trustpilot now. Yeah. Leave me a five-star review. So they were leaving a five-star review for a course that they've not actually done. So now me and you go on in a week's time looking, oh, look, there's another 15 five-star reviews. The course must be good. Well, no, because none of them people have done the course. And when you look at it, it's lies at every single stage of the... And people will say, oh, well, it's just good marketing. They're just good salespeople. But if your product was good, would you need people to lie and give you a five-star product? If your product was good, would you need to pay people to be advocates to sit in the crowd and pretend they were excited, get up, high-five, and run on stage? <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> like... Would if, if your product was really worth thirty grand, would you be selling it for ninety seven dollars? Like, no, like so why lie say it's thirty grand? Just say oh it was a hundred dollars and now you can get it for nine dollars or whatever. Do you know what I mean? It's it's just mad. No one would give you ninety nine point nine percent off. It doesn't unless it wasn't worth that. You know, wasn't worth the the big price. So just seeing the same thing over and over again. So I just thought it'd be funny to document that. And uh, I trademarked the word entrepreneur as well. So amazing. You have to pay me. Um, we've had members of our audience sort of send us DMs, and um, I mean, we had we had that one girl, didn't we? Who was uh, she'd she'd paid a deposit yeah. for a course, and she was like, "Do you think I've made a big mistake? I've put this deposit down, and now they're asking for the rest of the money, and I'm I'm really unsure." Sounds like Fire Festival. That's what they did, didn't they? Yeah. Oh no, get your bracelets now. You can get your wristbands. You know, pre-order the money, load them up with money. It's like, yeah, and it just seems to be it's it's taking advantage of of because, I mean, so you've sat through these events. Yeah, loads. And, I mean, they're long, right? They yeah, go yeah. on for hours and hours. 14-hour days, some of them, two-day events. So you get, you get, well, again, like the psychology behind it is decision fatigue. If you're hungry, thirsty, you've been there all day in that environment, you will pretty much sign anything to get out, you know, because you're tired. You're not making, and also your emotions been raised. You're doing this for your family. You're ready to take the next step. Yes, yes. Well, there's only 20 left. Don't. If you're there's the only 20, 20 left and the plants have, have run up and gone and they've signed up. Yeah. So that's already, there's, so there's only 17 now. Yeah, so if you're the 21st person in the queue to think they're going to knock back, oh no, sorry, you've just missed out. We're not going to take your three yeah. down. No, even that, it's just like, it's a, it's a white lie. It's a stupid lie. But, you know, it's just, it's just all manipulative, isn't it? So um, weirdly, how this has kind of turned out now is I, I think there needs to be more regulation in that industry. Yeah. They hide in the gray areas and they're very careful with their words and stuff. And I think, if you've got to justify your actions saying, well, I'm asking one of them directly on camera on my YouTube channel, is it ethical or unethical? And he said, well, it's a gray area. Now, <laughs> if you've got to answer that question and say, well, it's a gray area, what that means is it's unethical. I just don't want to say it's unethical. Yeah. Because if it was ethical, you just go, of course it's ethical. So I think you're kind of answering your own question by not answering the question, if that makes sense. So yeah, it's... And if you look as well, it's the same people popping up in different things. I've seen one guy selling Forex trading. Now he's a Bitcoin expert three weeks later. Google the guy. He's, there's an expose of him done in the, the, the newspapers and stuff for being a fraud. And they just slightly change their name. They open up another profile. Because those three now, we could set up a website. We could set up some five-star reviews on there. And we could position ourselves as an expert in any field. Like, really. And that's, that's what I would warn anyone if you've never heard of this guy before, you'd not heard of him two days ago, but now he's following you around with targeted ads and he's telling you how successful he is. He's probably not that successful. Look at the, if, if I said to you guys, like name five of the most successful businessmen, they're people we know, yeah. right? Like you'll probably say Zuckerberg, Jeff, um, Jeff Bezos, yeah, Bezos, yeah. Bezos. Jeff Be Bezos, Amazon yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. So there's them. Elon Musk. Elon Musk, Richard, Richard Branson, Branson. Like, pick him. 
not one of them are on a YouTube video trying to say don't don't click skip or they're not they don't waste time at these events selling from stage just kind of so if the most famous richest most well respected people in business aren't doing that thing that these gobshites are doing these entrepreneurs are doing why are you thinking that's going to be the answer to your prayers and also they do things that are not in um, a crowded marketplace they're at sort of the leading edge of certain you know technology especially say like yeah. Elon Musk and stuff like that do you know what I mean like Tesla and space travel Richard Branson space travel whatever it might be PayPal they were making their money in something new you're now trying to get rich copying a formula that a thousand other people sat around you and now going to start doing your own career take the property investment thing if I held a property event in Warrington and I really made my money from investing property in Warrington. Why do I want to tell a thousand people how I do it yeah. and what I do? Because now I've just created competitors. competitors. Yeah. Right? It doesn't make any sense to a, a logical person. And I think when people sit back and look at what's being sold to them, they can recognize that themselves. Some don't want to recognize it. Some people have bought in too much. And it's hard to admit you've been conned. So I get a lot of flack from people that really I'm trying to help or protect or they can't see that. You know, I'm trying to be the good guy in this, not the bad guy. I don't, you know, I'm not trying to shoot down your guru and your hero. I just want you to see that they're not that person that you think they are. Yeah. You know, but crazy, isn't it? Yeah, is that, it's actually mind-blowing that you're getting negative feedback yeah. and uh, and you're being sh- like shadow banned on on LinkedIn and stuff. Yeah. Like, I get, I get um, negative feedback from two different groups of people, which is mad. So there's people that actually think that I'm sort of some leader and which I never chose to be, by the way. I didn't, you know, didn't, expect or think that was my goal or you know wanted that to be my yeah. goal they want me to do more and they want me to take up their personal sort of fight against the country i lost six grand it's like that girl you said i get people saying hey i've signed up to six of these courses before i've spent twenty-one thousand, but i think this is the right one do you think i should sign up to it and i almost want to say you're an idiot yeah it's not worked six times it's not the course that's the problem yeah. it's you but then they give you shit right so yeah. i get people that like what I do and don't think I've gone far enough and they want me to see, they want to see me decapitate a entrepreneur's head live on camera hold him up and say this is the guy Yeah, they want that and now I'm a fake and a fraud if I don't do that and then I get those people that like that guy that the other people want me to see, take his head off and say why are you attacking him he's, you know, he's helped me or I got rich off blah 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 it's weird how many millionaires that have been on these courses are in the YouTube comments do you know what I mean if you've really made that much money from that guy's course, why are you going to your sixth course? Yeah. You'd still just be doing the thing that you're making your money from. Yeah. But I suppose it's 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 cultish. Everyone wants cult. this kind of like magic pill, don't they? They mm-hmm. want they want to go and be given the the answer. Yeah. And they want someone to say this is what you need to do, and then you will be fine. Yeah, I say if you're looking for that, you're not cut out to do it anyway. That's almost like my criteria. If you're looking for a get rich quick or a shortcut to achieve that thing, you are not made of the right stuff yeah. to get rich yeah. or there's, be rich. There's a YouTuber who I've watched a lot of his content, and he said something that I'm just like, this is gold. He was like, too many people search for how to get famous on YouTube. They won't search. They won't search for how to ever edit a video quicker. Yeah. So it's like they don't want to learn the skills; they just want the fame. Yeah, yeah. And I think if you learn the skills and get really good at anything, money will come because yeah. the s- skills are a great exchange for money. Yeah, well, it should be a byproduct of being talented or good at something, yeah. shouldn't it? But like you said there, same with influencers. I want to be an influencer. No, that should be a byproduct of being good in your sector or niche. Yeah. Yeah. Then you're an influencer. Do you know what I mean? 
but it's mad now. Yeah, people want to be. I want to be famous. Like, cool, famous for what? Like, and they yeah. can't answer that thing. Yeah. Especially like with the whole influencer thing, where it's like, you just walk around and take pictures of yourself in your life, and that's a job. I mean, for for us with the podcast, we were kind of um, worried in the beginning that no one would listen because our message is you've got to work really fucking hard. <laughs> yeah. And we know no one wants to hear that. So, um, but fortunately people do want to hear that and we found our, our people and they, they listen and they like it. But I suppose a, a much more, like we could have 10X'd our, our, um, our listens had we come out with a title that was like, yeah, get everything for doing nothing. Because yeah. that's what a lot of people just want. Well, there's that book, isn't it? The One Minute Millionaire. And that sold 130 million copies. It's like, but really, if that book was called, you know, 60 hour work week for 10 years of your life, I don't yeah. think it would have sold half as many books. And that's the problem with society. Like, you know, people can't even wait six seconds to skip an ad. They're looking at that countdown and how slow is that six seconds? Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. people can't wait for anything now. And But then I get, well, you did it in two and a half years. But like I said, it was like sort of eight years worth of, it was eight years worth of sort of learning and yeah. failing beforehand and seeing yeah, yeah. other people's failures. Yeah. Yeah. So then allow me to think, oh, actually, I can make a, an educated guess at this. And even then it was like, and this isn't going to, ours was a three year plan. And I think that was pushing it really, you know. Yeah. Three years is quick. Because yeah. like we've found a lot of people that we've talked to, there's like three years seems like a bit of a magical number of like, if you grind for that amount of time and keep getting better and keep struggling, about three years is when things start to come to fruition, yeah. when all the little flags you've placed over the years finally like get found. Part of the logic in that though as well was, <clears throat> so we were making a new style of content and it wasn't, th- there wasn't e-learning like that at the time. We were competing with people that had a far bigger budget, been around for 10, 15 years before we had and had a far bigger production team and more script writers, more animators, all that type of thing. So we knew they could easily replicate what we had done in three years in six months, yeah. 12 months. So we needed to get in, get out quickly. And also some of the courses we made in year one would have needed refreshing in year three, year yeah. four. So to go back and refresh some of our old content would have slowed down our production thing. So we actually thought that's probably where we'd still have an impact on the industry. We'd still be like a sort of leader before any of our competitors overtook us. So, and the price that we sold that, we thought it wasn't too much. Say if we wanted, say, 25 million for the business, someone might go, well, we could make that for 4 million ourselves in a year, so we'll just yeah. do that. So it was almost like we picked a figure that was a lot to us, but not too much where people just think, I'll oh, sod that, we're not going to invest in that. It was like an easy sell, really, which is mad. Mad to say, like an 8 million pound product was an easy thing to yeah. sell, but it was. So if you, um, but, but then that, that goes to having the right client. Because, um, I mean, we, we're talking all the time to sort of like artists, graphic designers who are way, way, way undervaluing their stuff. And it's like, I mean, we realized quite quickly on we can charge like a parent for a kid's bedroom. We can charge them 200 quid or for the same amount of time that it would take us to create that. We could go to Xbox and paint their offices for 20 grand. Like it, it, it was find the, the customer that's going to that's gonna pay you the most. Well, we used to say um, target the affluent. So I'll tell you a funny story now. So it's not that funny, actually. Uh, but, <laughs> but, um, so the first four courses we made were targeted at job seekers. And we then approached loads and loads of recruitment companies to say, if your candidate doesn't get the job, offer them these four courses in a bundle and that will make them more job ready for their next job. That was the idea. Those four courses were priced at £40. 
we sold four. And that was when we arranged a deal with Monster. So Monster put it on their website. We had some resellers that were in recruitment. Recruitment consultants and recruitment companies couldn't sell a course to candidates because that's not their job. They don't want to do that. They want to place candidates and get paid big money. Yeah. They're not thinking, I'll make £20 if we split this 50-50 by giving candidate XYZ these these courses, these you know job-ready um, skills for interview, uh, you know, get ready for your interview and all that kind of stuff. So they weren't asked. But then when we thought about it, 20, 40 pounds to someone that's not working and are looking for like a job is a lot of money. What's dole a week? Like exactly. Yeah. But th- I know this sounds obvious now, but we thought that was the business back when we started. You know, like the first few weeks, we went and took those same courses and to- bundled them together, and then went and approached high street brands and said, "It's ten grand for these courses." And we sold more of them at £10,000 than we could at £40. But that wasn't because the product was different. It was the perceived value, number one. But also, we targeted the affluent. And it's like, if you're making something and you're going for, let's price this low and let's target people on low income and stuff like that. No, that's their money they're spending. Go and target people that have to spend someone's money. Mm. So if you've got a budget, of a hundred grand and you don't spend that hundred grand that year, your budget's probably getting cut. So come year end for us, when we've got high street brands, we're selling to people, well, how much budget have you got left? Right, we'll, we'll do this on a two year deal to get that budget or fine, we'll charge you that price for it. You see what I mean? So target the affluent is a massive thing I learned. So we just made a list of the, the top 200 companies in the UK and went after them first rather than fucking about and saying, oh, well, we'll do it cheap. We'll go and he's only got five people that work there. Yeah. So we'll go, there. it's like, no, they've got 500,000. They're going to be our first client. And by the time they get on board, we'll work out how we can handle them. Yeah. We were taking clients on before we even had staff to take them on, really, because we knew by the time we saw, we'll work it out. And, uh, you know, I think some people think, let's get it all ready. Let's get the business perfect. Right. OK, now, now we're ready to go and approach a Microsoft or a Google or an Amazon but you don't know how long their decision-making process is. Now, if you're trying to plan and sell your business in three years' time, no, like, let's try and get a deal with Amazon now. Let's try and get a deal with Google now. And we'll work it out how it works because if we can get big money off them, then we'll get an extra two people in to build this stuff. So that's kind of, that, that target in the affluent and how much you can get away. You can charge people. I mean, we get it now. So I, where I used to live and where I live now, different. Um, how much the guy charged to do my fence in my old house and how much he charged to do the fence in my new house, he he basically said, it's, oh, this is your postcode tax. He said, oh, no, people on this estate can pay more. Yeah. It's the same number of panels. Garden's the same size. But he's gone, oh, no, like, this is a wealthier area, so he, so we charged me an extra 300 quid. But he's pocketing that. But he knows <laughs> yeah, he can yeah, do yeah. it because people that live there are used to paying more for things. They don't like, you know, do you know what I mean? He'd do the job for 200, 300, 400 quid cheaper in a different postcode in Warrington. It's crazy, isn't it? Everyone does it. Yeah. Yeah, smart. Smart business. Yeah. Wicked. Well, that was awesome. Um, where can people find you? YouTube's the big one. We've, our target at the beginning of the year was 30,000 subscribers. So if someone can find Mike Winnett on YouTube and subscribe, that would be a massive help. And then Mike Winnett on Insta and Mike Winnett on LinkedIn. But YouTube's the main one. Good. Thanks so much for listening. If you get any value from these episodes, it would mean the world to us if you could share the podcast with someone who needs it. You can always reach out to us on Instagram at rebelscreate or head over to creativerebels.co. And remember, always be creating. See ya.